Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing? What's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com. And you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference. The conference, attendees say, is like Ted without the bullshit. We're flipping it up this season. We're live on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays. You get the same amount of mouthwash, don't worry. We're just spreading it over the middle of the week. It's a reflection of the times and changing world of work, which is actually our theme for this season of mouthwash, the real world of work. This season, we're exploring what's working, what's not. We're checking our assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I want to know what's really going on under the surface, where it's all going and how we're going to get there. I have an amazing cohort of people joining me this season from multiple best-selling authors like Dan Pink to brand new uh, startups who are creating new models for the metaverse. I'm also discussing the future with experts from Harvard University, behavioral psychologists to TikTok superstars. You can check out the full lineup and previous episodes of Mouthwash all over at mouthwashshow.com. That's mouthwashshow.com. I am proud to say that we are sponsored again this season, this time by the folks over at Workplace by Meta. Whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways uh, to make your place of work, a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very cool indeed. They're doing some very cool stuff over there. Um, Ecology are back as well to plant a tree for every live listener in the TBD forest. Um, We're over 13,000 trees strong at the moment and growing. Um, If you're looking to reduce your or your business's carbon footprint, head over to ecology.com, start planting your forest today. Uh, Very good people. Um, It's a very good thing as well to share out the space. Um, Just hit the blue plus button down in the bottom right hand corner and uh, you can compose a little tweet while I'm talking away. And uh, that basically helps people know that the space is going And everyone we lure into this space basically gets a tree planted in their behaviour. So, yeah, so everyone in the space gets a tree. And I think you'll agree that's no bad thing. Okay, on with tonight's show. Joining me tonight from New Orleans, Louisiana, is journalist and author of The Art of Noticing, Rob Walker. Rob writes about design, technology, business, the arts, and has written columns for The New York Times, 
called The Workologist, and also the consumed column for the New York Times magazine between 2004 to 2011. Uh, Rob also featured in the awesome documentary Objectified by Gary Hustwick, which if you haven't seen, it's amazingly good. So check it out. I think it's on Netflix, but I'm not sure. If not, it's definitely online. Rob is a faculty member for the Products of Design MFA program at the School of Visual Arts and regularly contributes to the likes of Bloomberg Business Week, The Atlantic, New Yorker, Design Observer, amongst many others on the subject of design. Author of many books, including comic books, The Art of Noticing has received acclaim for its straightforward advice and 131 ways uh, to change your life and uh, notice more and take more sort of notice of the things around you. Um, I think he's prolific, incredibly smart, and he's given his time to me to talk to, me, to us about the world of work, self-awareness, uh, in and out of the office, and a lot more besides. Um, welcome to Mouthwash, Rob. What was the first thing you thought of when you woke up today? <laughs> I thought <laughs> I thought I must thank Paul for his nice introduction that I'm sure he's going to give me when I uh, get on the space. Uh, what did I miss I out? What did I miss out? No, you did a great job. That was very flattering. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me to do this. I'm excited. Well, very welcome. I uh, I love having people that I haven't, uh, you know, either either met because it's well, we haven't met, have we? Um, it's all been through the internet, and I kind yeah. of love that. That's what Twitter sort of does. You know, you can sort of meet your heroes, meet interesting people, different points of view, and that sort of thing. So yeah, all all, all sort of fun. Um, this thing yeah. is all about the future of work. Um, what's your current situation when it comes to work? I assume, you know, you're obviously remote from the New York Times, uh, or when you work there, rather, um, and you're a journalism by trade and author, so you can work sort of on your own and, yeah. you know, you're your own boss. But what's your office like? Do you have one? Are you back to an office co-working? What's it like? No, no, no office for me. I'm, um, I uh, am a longtime veteran. I have a lot of experience being a remote worker. I have been a remote worker since 2000. Uh, when I left New York, I used to actually work physically at the New York Times way back in the day and left New York to move to New Orleans in 2000 um, and have worked remotely ever since. Now, I I was mostly freelance during that time, but there were, there have been stints. I have experience working remotely for being working at home at, uh, for Yahoo uh, for a while. And then I worked at home more recently during the pandemic. I was on staff at medium for about a year and a half, uh, which is what I was doing before. So when that ended, I'm now uh, doing a Substack uh, pro uh, program and freelancing. So I'm back to back to pure remote, you know, so remote in the sort of I'm on my own hustling in my room <laughs> sense of it. Uh, but I do have experience with this with sort of dealing with remote managers and all of that kind of stuff. And it's it's been really interesting to watch the whole work zeitgeist become focused on this one issue. Um, and like, if I feel like whole publications have sprung up to to deal with uh, the, the the vagaries of remote work, so it's a great subject. Definitely, I'm I'm really interested to talk to Julia Holsborn later in the series as well. She's got a new book out about hybrid working, and she's gone through some real pitfalls mm -hmm. with it. So yeah, super interesting. What's been your biggest learning over the last two or three years when you've been working through this? Well, I mean, it's been a weird two or three years, right? Because the, the like I said, the zeitgeist has changed on this, and it what used to be kind of a niche, esoteric sort of eccentric lifestyle decision is now considered, I think, a pretty mainstream possibility. And to be honest, I think that there's a fair amount of overthinking going on. I think that there is a lot of emphasis on, um, you know. 
uh, acting as if this technical change, and I say this again as a, from the position of having over 20 years of doing this, I know it's not for everybody, um, and it never will be. That, we're never going to live in a fully distributed world because there are people who really want to go to offices, uh, not just managers, but everybody. And there's really no, I think everybody's looking for a magic silver bullet shortcut to say like, aha, this hybrid situation is, and this is how we do it. And we have three meetings a week instead of four or whatever, you know, four day work week, 10 hour, all these phrases. And there's really no shortcut. It's going to, it's going to be step by step work your way through it organization by organization and manager by manager. Um, and I don't know if that's good news or bad news. Like the, <laughs> the good news is things haven't changed as much as you think. And the bad news is things haven't changed as much as you think. I love that. I think that's a good sentiment to, uh, to kick off with. Um, I want to come back and talk about um, the office and the future of where it's all going and sort of hybrid working uh, towards the end. But I want to start off with um, some of the columns that you wrote for the New York Times. Um, you sure. wrote a piece about the design legacy that COVID is leaving already. What do you think will be the biggest impact that COVID has on the design world or our daily lives when it comes to design? Yeah, so I was, it's a good time to ask that because I just, I have, as you say, I'm based in New Orleans. I was just recently in New York for the first time in two or three years. And so New York is a city where there's a lot of visible changes in the form. And I, so, you know, all the outdoor eating space is one obvious one. Um, and I think that that is a, I don't know what will happen with those individual things, but I think that there has been a fresh conversation started about the use of public space that I think is going to uh, last a long time. Um, and in a funny way, I mentioned this in the piece that the, the <laughs> one of the sort of work a day and kind of, in my opinion, depressing legacies of the uh, pandemic will be the persistence of the QR code as, a, um, as, as an interface that substitutes for human uh, interfaces. And in a funny way, that is actually a side effect of public space, you know, how, how we use, uh, how, we sh how we share space. Um, so I think that those things, you know, I, I'm not necessarily saying that like, oh, the future will be full of this specific technology, but I think that it's an indicator of a shift in direction that we'll see continue to play out. And that when we'll look back we'll look back and, you know, marvel that the world ever existed without some of these things. I agree. QR codes is one that I have been bullish on for, I don't know how long, over a decade, probably before the pandemic, simply because went to Japan, saw them everywhere. And I was asking people like, do you use them? Like, how do you trust them? They're like, oh my God, we couldn't live without them. And I, was, I went, yeah, I could totally see that when they come through. But that was only because the technology people allowed them to be read. As soon as Apple blipped on QR codes, they were, they were gaining a lot of momentum even before the um, pandemic. So it just sort of shows you how, you know, our habits are controlled by the technology barons in some ways, shape or form. But yeah, anyway, yeah, back to the office. Sure. Um, the office has been, continues to be much maligned at the moment. The word prisons bandied about by designers <laughs> and users alike. What does the post-pandemic office look like in your opinion? What are your hopes for it? Um, I must admit, when I walk around London, I'm not seeing a lot of creativity in the new builds. I'm not seeing a lot of creativity either. And it's it's been a little bit kind of disappointing. And maybe I'm just not looking at the right stuff. But 
I think that the, 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 the bad trend in office design that should be reversed is, of course, these, these uh, quote-unquote open spaces where people are sort of forced to share their personal space and it like sort of sub like just we'll all sit at a table and stare at each other. You know, it's this terrible, a counterproductive, um, and, uh, certainly mentally unhealthy, uh, workspace. So, you know, you think that we would see some creativity and, and maybe there are people listening to this who will now start tweeting at me about all the amazing stuff that's going, all the ex- amazing experiments that are going on. But I'm currently not, I, I, b- believe me, when I was doing that Times Magazine story, we talked about it and there were, my, you know, my editors and I talked about it and there were some experiments going on and there, but they, it, it, none of it was very convincing um, in, in terms of you know, there are these extreme reactions of like these booths that you would be inside. And um, I just don't believe that that's, I don't believe that the office is going to be a bunch of sealed off booths uh, with a fancy ventilation system. So, you know, I don't know. I I think that maybe it'll just take time and incremental change to find something that both serves an organization's needs, because there is I think in the background of this, there's a big real estate issue of, I think a lot of organizations are figuring like, well, if, if, if a hundred percent of my people aren't going to be in the office all the time and like 50% will be there at any given time, maybe I need a smaller foot, maybe I can get away with a smaller footprint. And that's going to, you know, when, you you know, that's going to mandate a different kind of physical design. So I, I have been in offices that are you know two third or uh, two thirds empty now, and they feel spooky. Um, it's it's not it's not what either side is looking for. Like even the employee who wants to go back to the office, and those people do exist, they don't want to go back to a spooky half empty office. That's no fun. So I, I don't think we've seen good answers to that question yet. I think it's the right question, but I don't think we've seen good answers. Yeah, I keep sort of get. I hear I hear it from both sides, and I'll be interested to hear what Leeson's talk. I think we're doing that next week as well. The Leeson's index with you know what people are actually doing at work, what they think and feel, and what businesses are doing. Um, that will be an interesting one to ask. I'm I'm just not sure that businesses have the right idea about offices full stop anymore i feel like a lot of people are telling them what to do but because of the realities of you know how much money they have the the leases that they're in they just aren't able to make those decisions and they're sort of in a bit of paralysis about it because you know to knock down walls you have to get permission you have to like decide that you're going to be there and that sort of thing and i just don't think people are thinking far enough ahead at the moment and i think now's the time to do that in order to get ahead but I, i just don't think the headspace is there for a lot of people certainly from the leaders that i'm uh, lucky enough to get to talk to as well. Yeah, um, I agree with that, and I think that I think that's that's partly related to what I mean when I say that there's a, a real estate issue lurking in the background. That like it's it's easy for you and I to sit here and say you know change your no, no you know knock down walls, build walls, move into a smaller space. We're talking about people with ten year leases, and um, so it's going to take some time for that stuff to shake out. Yeah, it's certainly uh, an op for people who can do things modular and move stuff around. I think, but again, not seeing that being pushed but you never know it might happen um all right let's talk about the book um i want to talk actually before we do that let's uh, let's talk about self-awareness in general um how fair is it to say uh self-awareness has taken a nosedive in recent decades is there any data out there to support that 
I don't know about data. I think that it is, I think that the data that you would see is polling data indicating that people feel that that is true, which essentially makes it true. Um, you know, I, 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 and you see, you see sort of people forwarding information about smaller attention spans and stuff like this. I, I, I'm in the camp that this is a, an eternal human problem, but that it has been accelerated by uh, technology. I don't think that there's much to be gained from demonizing technology. I think that uh, the answer is to uh, reaffirm the positive aspects of engaging with the real world and uh, remind people that there's good, good, good stuff to be had <laughs> from being self-aware. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, But yes, I think that there's no question that, you know, having this thing in your pocket that allows literally everyone you know to ping you at any given moment, um, it presents challenges to attention and engagement. As we um, exit or dip in the pandemic, um, how, how is self-aware, do you think it will be, do you think self-awareness is going to be uh, improved or do you think it's hindered uh, how people think about themselves? Well, I think, you know, I don't know how, how long this stuff will last, but I think it's obviously been a period of, I saw this with, so the book came out in 2019 and then the newsletter, which is also about the same stuff, uh, you know, picked up steam around that time. And at that point, the emphasis was very much on get out and explore your world. Well, and then by March of 2020, it wasn't really a great idea to tell people like go eat at an unfamiliar restaurant. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. not really wasn't really sound advice. So I had to sort of adjust and say like you know get more introspective. The book is all has always been well you know it's a book so I couldn't change the book but the it, it was always built in this way that it landed on the idea of self you know of engagement that was self. Um, aware and uh, centered on the interior. You know, you sort of start by looking out at the world and you end up by looking uh, inward. And so there became more of an emphasis on that and that really resonated with people. And I think that that wasn't because I was doing anything innovative. I think that that's because that's what everybody was doing. Um, it was a, a, clearly a period of considerable introspection for many, many people you know, and to just tie in the work world, that's one of the things that caused the great resignation is that people had time to look inward, ask themselves some questions. How long will that last? You know, I don't know how to spitball that. Like, I think some of it will last. Um, I think that this period has been a pivotal, life-changing couple of years for a lot of people. So that mark will linger. Um, but I'm always leery of, I was writing the consumed co a column about consumer culture during the 2008 uh, collapse. And I remember wave upon wave of people predicting that this was a new paradigm. People were giving up on conspicuous consumption. We were never going to, but SUVs were going out of stock. You can look this stuff up. You know, the, it was the death of the SUV. Guess what? None of that happened. All of, you know, mm -hmm. we reverted to the mean and I suspect we will revert to the mean again. There will be some lingering scars and changes, but uh, people are, you know, generation upon generation, we, we, we have a trajectory and, uh, and it's harder, it's harder to shake that than people sometimes, uh, want to believe. 
Yeah. You mentioned the great resignation there. Uh, that's something that a lot of people are talking about. A lot of um, the data is showing a great acceleration of resignation rather than, you know, resignation just happening right now. Um, sometimes it's hard knowing that something isn't right. It might not be feeding us or there's, you know, years are passing and they just feel like they're passing us by. What would be your advice from all of your columns, all of the books and everything like that for people who are stuck in their jobs at the moment or feel like they are? Well, you know, get a new job <laughs> is the short answer. The longer answer is, huh, you know, the longer answer, what I always tell people is that it's what I'm a big believer in the idea of always looking for the new thing, that you're not trying to set up your career in the sense of like, oh, here's my goal. I get to it. And then I stop and stand there and wait until I feel bad again and then start moving again. It's much better to be in motion all the time so that you don't feel blindsided and in this situation that, you know, I think that this is why I think we saw the, why I linked the great resignation to this period of forced introspection is because I think that in general, we go through the motions or just, you know, we, we stick with what seems to be working until there's a crisis. And if you wait until there's a crisis, then it's really hard to, to start over and to find a new, a new thing. Mm. So my, this is, so this is like kind of annoying advice, but it's like, don't wait until there's, don't wait until there's a crisis. If there is, don't be in denial about it. And, you know, steal yourself to the idea that it's no, so this is the secondary piece of advice. Steal yourself to the idea that it's unlikely you're going to be able to change your situation because you feel like this has become intolerable. I need to get out of here. I need to start, I need to do something new. Um, or change or change the situation that I'm in. It needs to change decisively within, you know, like a month. That's probably not going to happen. So admit to yourself that um, you either are going to have to take a long road to fixing the situation that you're in, which sometimes is possible, or tracking down a new situation, which is always possible. Mm. And uh, my final advice would be do both at the same time and see what happens and always try to give yourself options. That's the best single piece of advice is maximize options mm -hmm. all the time. Okay. I like that. Uh, I'm all for options. Um, okay. Uh, are you aware of influencers in the wild? Uh, I'm, I, 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 I am uh, as a concept or as, is that a specific thing that you're naming? It is a specific thing uh, that I am naming. It is a Instagram feed that uh, oh, a Twitter okay. account. No, no, That's fine. I don't, I don't know. So essentially what it is, is it's people uh, taking videos of influencers, quote unquote, finger wiggles, um, who are creating the shot that goes on Instagram, right? So you've got a person sure. on holiday taking a photo or video of a person taking a photo or video for, to put on their feed. It is hilarious to see the links some of these people uh, sure. go to, right? They're so obsessed with getting the shot for Instagram or whatever social channel they want to garner attention on. Um, they kind of miss what they look like and what's going on around them. There seems to be this culture <laughs> that's pushing the, the the economic term, the greater fool, right? The economy, it's going faster and faster. Get rich, get, get out sort of thing. Mm -hmm. When we think about self-awareness, these people don't seem to sort of have it or seem to be able to push it down. How do we slow that sort of issue down or, or is it up to us or should platforms step in? And so, well, okay. So do you, do you mean is the issue, I mean, one issue is just, you know, mute those accounts or whatever. Don't pay attention to those people. But yeah. do you mean the, or are you talking about the issue of those, 
Uh, should we be concerned about the, whether those influencers, quote unquote, are um, engaging in the world? I mean, I don't really care. It's uh, well, I not don't. my problem. <laughs> I don't per se. I don't follow those people and that's the thing. I follow the account because I think it's funny, but that's yes, my warped sense of humor. Yeah. Um, it's a cautionary we, tale. It's a great example of how not to live your life. Yeah, that's my issue though. Is like there's 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 quite a few people out there who now and certainly young people who are um, aspiring to be TikTok influencers, YouTube influencers, and that sure. sort of thing. And that requires a form of self awareness, almost demotion, if that makes sense. You have to sort of yeah. sell yourself, if that makes sense. So you have to be aware, but also sometimes change your behaviour to do anything. Anyway, we're finding out a lot is a lot is damaging, uh, and that. But tell me, it, what would be your advice for people who might find themselves um, in that sort of arena you know who sort of feel like they might be forced down to making decisions yeah. to get a new job or like you know appear smarter than they are or whatever yeah yeah i see what you're getting at and i don't mean to be flipping about it and i know that it is you know it's hard because the way that you framed it originally is it how much of it is there i i, I don't know that platforms can really do much about this i think it's more of a cultural issue and um i don't know that there are easy ways out except to you know try to remind these people that there is life is more complicated than it, it's kind of like anyone you know in some ways there's always been a culture of you know wishing you could be a star or something like that but now that's become so easily democratized that anybody can fantasize about becoming an Instagram influencer and, or a TikTok influencer, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tricky. And it's, it, I think it has more to do with, with trying to do what I'm doing, which is to say, instead of saying like, Oh, we need rules or whatever. I just, I believe in preaching the gospel of, of, as it, as it were of, you know, the real world is an interesting place and it's uh, worth uh, paying attention to and not trying to be, sort of a performer in a simulacrum mm. uh, no, all the I like time. that. I like yeah. that. All right, let's talk about the book a bit more. The book starts with um, the amazing quote from author of, uh, amongst things, the Encyclopedia of Ordinary Life, uh, Amy Krauss-Rosenthal. Uh, the quote was, pay attention to what you pay attention to. That's pretty much all the info you need. When did you start paying attention to what you pay attention to? Well... Um, I would say pretty early because I have made a living as a journalist for a long time. And a big part of that is, uh, trusting your instincts that X, Y, Z thing that I notice. And so here's how I frame it when I talk to people about this is that I think that there's a tendency and like, let's use these influencers as a baseline to link these things together. There is this feeling that like, if you're, and I, I say this to students all the time, there's this feeling that if you, you're paying attention to something and it's not trending and no one's posting about it, then it's really easy to feel like, well, this thing doesn't really matter very much and it must not be that important. Well, obviously the things that, that I notice that no one else notices, I have to believe that, they're, that that's more important, that that's what makes me, me. And as a journalist, so this goes back to my you know early 20s, I had to develop a sort of faith in my instincts that some thing some what it whether it was i think this artist is interesting so i want to write about them even though no one else has written about them you know that's belief in your own uh, paying attention to what you're paying attention to that what you're paying attention to uh, matters and that you can make a case for it so 
that's the basis of my life. Now, I didn't really realize that until much later. And I'll just say quickly about the book. I spent three or four years thinking about that book in a totally different way, where it was that book was originally going to be about the problem. It was going to oh, be 300 okay. pages of of the attention crisis and all that stuff and like how we're, how we can't concentrate anymore and all the stuff that we started out talking about. And then it would be 10 pages of here are some handy tips to get back engaged in real life. And after years of pretending to write that book, which I was not working on, I realized all I cared about was those last 10 pages. So I flipped it and there's now a 10 page introduction about here's the problem. You already know all this. Let's get to the next 290 pages right. of, here are solutions to get you back engaged in the world. I mean, that that's the project. That was what that was. But it took me a long time to figure that out. Mm. Your quote, I don't know if it's in the book. Um, I can't remember where I found it from now, but it says, there's nothing more important than the stuff you notice that no one else does. That's where every single innovation begins. That's where all creativity begins. Um, I don't know why it just really stuck with me. I, I, but why are we so good at not noticing things? What's stopping <laughs> us seeing more? <laughs> I think it's. I think that there is a... Um, I don't know. I, I'm going to go out. I'm going to speak out of my pay grade or whatever the phrase is. Like, I think there's a biological sort of evolutionary thing going on there where, you know, if everyone else is, if, if the rest of the pack is lying around comfortably and not paying attention to that thing, <laughs> then it must be fine. Everything must be fine. Like, I think we take a lot of social cues. So it takes some wherewithal to... It takes being a bit of an outsider and looking at the world a bit askew to see what others aren't seeing. And then it takes a certain confidence to pursue that. And maybe the word curiosity is there. I've been sort of thinking a lot about the word curiosity and like this is sort of an act more active version of noticing Great where, you, where you take a net and you not just notice something, but take a step to explore it, like step toward it. Um, and that becomes what an entrepreneur does. That's what I always use the example. I can't remember the guy's name right now, but the guy who invented Velcro, it was, it, he noticed the burrs stuck to the, uh, bottom of his pants and just how, and like mm. studied how they were put together and said, Hmm, that's kind of interesting. And I wonder if you can, you know, that led to a thing that is now part of our daily life that was there all along and just no one paid attention to it. Um, uh, the book is a superb read. Everybody should go out and buy it. Seth Godin gave you a really nice blurb on the jacket saying that the book helps uh, develop uh, what he calls the attention muscle. Um, you give in the book 131 ways to exercise that muscle. Which was your favorite one, though? Oh, well, everybody asks this. And I, of course, I don't have a I had to ask it. I had to ask it. <laughs> but I will. I, I, I don't. I really don't have a favorite. But uh, the one that I often mention uh a, a lot of them came from, or uh, several of them came from students that I have taught. And one of the fun ones is uh, is uh, from a student who kind of miss because I give them the assignment. I give students the assignment of practice paying attention. So that's the whole assignment. And the point is that they have to invent some way of paying attention. And I had one student who felt like he had misunderstood. He he went and. He said, listen, I misunderstood what you meant or I got it wrong because what I did is I bought a cactus and took care of it. And I said, no, well, that's not what I had in mind, but it, it is perfect in a way because attention <laughs> is caring and caring is attention and you should care about what you pay attention to and pay attention to what you care about. So 
that ends up being the sort of concluding uh, exercise in the book, which is not a spoiler. So you should still buy the book, but um, <laughs> but it is one of my favorites because I thought it was a misunderstanding, but a very sweet one and a very and a very wise one that definitely uh, always stuck with me. Definitely. What would be number one hundred thirty-two? What didn't make it in? Um, there were a bunch that didn't make it in, and that's what the newsletter is for. Um, there. Let's, well, let's talk about that for a sec. Okay. Yeah. Um, newsletter is superb actually it's robwalker.substack.com robwalker.substack.com if you want to sign up for it um all about attention uh, staying human creativity that sort of thing um some of my favorite content comes from the icebreaker section that you create yeah. um there was a google doc i think i've got it starred and i always try and start an email with it and that sort of thing um my favorite when i'm out and uh, out and about and i think i've done this at a tbd event or seven um if you had to be a boat what boat would you be right? <laughs> that's the, that's the best one because people go yeah. you know what i would be a and they always have an idea but it's always <laughs> totally different from everyone else um yeah. two questions what's your favorite icebreaker number one and why okay. are icebreakers so important right um okay so the one that i like the, the so yes and i should i should be clear that the icebreaker series is largely reader generated it's i contribute sometimes but it's mostly me taking suggestions from readers and someone had this one the one that i always think about because it is so strange is what inedible object if you could eat any inedible object does that make sense what would it be so and her example was like something like a christmas ornament and just like to feel the crunch of it and i think that's such a bizarre question like using that as an actual icebreaker i think is maybe a dubious idea but yes on the other hand maybe not you know uh, people will remember you for sure and so to the question of why icebreakers matter there is a whole section in the book about this it, it is a book about noticing and attention and 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 one of the misconceptions that people have is that that means just like looking at the world or studying paintings and things like this. It is also about other people, you know, and learning to be a better listener and learning to engage with other people and be surprised by other people and engage with strangers, engage with your neighbors. There's such a wealth of surprise, wisdom, humor, whatever you want to call it in the people that surround us all the time that we just take for granted or ignore or, or, or just actively tune out because we're, yeah, because we're, you know, engaged with our screens or whatever, whatever it is, or with our own, you know, worries and demons or whatever. So the icebreaker series started precisely from that urge is, uh, you know, what's a non-conventional, and I encourage the weird ones. And I think what kind of boat would you be is almost as weird. But it 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 makes people think, and it makes it stops people, and it 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 it, it causes a sort of level of engagement that, like I said, it might not be perfect for I don't know a genteel dinner party, but there are situations where you can break out one of these things, and um, you could start a real conversation, and that's the goal. I think the the key, isn't it, is that it breaks the schema of meeting someone, really. You know, you have that, hello, my yeah. name is, and I do this. Hello, my name is. And so by asking him a crazy question, you go, oh, wait, yeah, I'm a real person. And I'm a real Paul. person. You know? You're a real person. Let's exactly. Really yeah, I think they, that's exactly, that's, that's the idea. Flipping that on its head. So when we aren't in a room together, like we are now, is there, um, is breaking the ice over Zoom, say, for example, any different to doing it in real life? Is there a, a digital art to being charming? 
I think that this is another one where it's the answer is a work in progress because my instinct is to say, I, I think that Zoom, this is, I guess people are going to probably be annoyed by this, but I think that right now we're at the level where like a Zoom conversation is like 70% of a real face-to-face conversation. <laughs> like it's not nothing. Yeah. And we're getting better at it because we've now been forced to practice, most of us, most of us who are in white collar jobs. Um, And so it's becoming more normal. And I I have now have the experience, you know, I would not have believed you if at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I would have said, look, I'll get through this thing and I'll use the Zoom stuff to do the stuff I have to do, but I'll never meet someone for the first time and strike up a friendship through this. But that's turned out not to be true. I have, I have had first meetings with you know, like people who I've met the way I met you, and obviously I've done that for years. We all mm. have meeting people online, and so and then you look forward to the day when like, oh, I'm going to be in wherever you live, and let's have a drink. And now it's like, well, I'm yeah. not going to be in wherever you live, but let's have a drink anyway in separate places on screens. And like I said, I'm at the point where I think it's 70% of a real meeting. So that's my, that's my statistical answer. <laughs> I have no data Scientific method, yeah. No data, uh, no, no data. I, I would agree. And I think the tools have definitely come on leaps and bounds. Um, we spoke with Phil Leibin from uh, mm-hmm, the app. Great, um, he's great. He's, he's, great. A, he's one of the most genuine, friendly, and just open people I think I've ever spoken with. Smart, but he, smart guy. He started off, he hated video conferencing and he said, mm-hmm. I wanted to make it better. So I just did. And he go, and he noticed yeah. what was wrong with all of the th- ones that were out there. And he said, the one yeah. thing I noticed was that people's eyes didn't look at each other and they still don't. And we can't do that because yeah. of technology, but we're working on it, you know, and that sort yeah. of thing. So he's, you know, I like the realism um, when it comes to creating new things because you are noticing the defects or the, the opportunities that are out there. And that's the thing. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think he's in that story that we talked about er- the, uh, design legacy of COVID talking about this issue. I think he made the final. I know I interviewed him for it. I think he's in the final. Oh, cool. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, yeah, yeah, I think he's one of the smartest thinkers on this specific issue that, I mean, I don't know if it, I don't, I, I can't speak to the details of his company, but um, on this general issue, yes, he's someone who had a 100% conversion from being completely against video meetings to saying to like, he, now he lives in Arkansas or something. Um, because he just believes in an all remote all the time. Yeah. And I don't think you necessarily have to be super skilled with them. You just have to have a realistic nature of what you're trying to do, right? It doesn't, everyone kept saying that's right. the biggest problem with Zoom is that they're so long. You're like, well, that's that's your thing. That's you're yes. controlling that, not it. You know, and that's <laughs> yes. sort of, it, was, it was a weird sort of, for about a year, yes. I think people were going, oh, they just gone forever. And I'm like, but that's the people, not you, not, right. not, not it. You right. can't blame Zoom for it. Yeah, that's right. It's it's, uh, it's a funny one, isn't it? Um, I'm going right. to ask uh, a lot of people, I think, uh, a question on the, on the future of where work is going um give me a sort of you know put your forecasters hat on for the next three to five years where do you see uh the world of work going what's going to stay the same what's going to change well i think it's going to be and this is takes us back to where we started and and kind of related to what you just said about people people are gonna there's going to be three to five years of people realizing variations on what you just said about the problem isn't the technology, the problem is you. 
um, adjusting to the technology. The Zoom meetings don't go on long because they're Zoom meetings. They go on long because the people in them are letting them go on too long. And so we're going to have to, it's going to be three to five years of incremental experimentation and change. There will be no silver bullet. Um, I think that we'll end up closer to where we started than people think right now. I hope that there is, you know, to, to hit on another one of the themes that we started with, I hope that there is some change to the physical design of offices that I just think is desperately yeah. needed. And that I'm not seeing a lot, I'm not seeing a lot of examples right now, but I'm really hopeful that that, that as people come back into offices, that that change will start to happen because as you know, design, there's a lot about design that's a mythology that design sort of comes down from the heavens and, and, you know, and everyone adjusts and it's kind of the opposite that design comes into the world and then people use it. And then that shapes how the next round of design goes. And the, you know, the app store wasn't even part of the original iPhone as an example, right? Like, um, and now yeah. it's the, and now all the iPhone is, is a holder of apps. That's, <laughs> it's, it's a whole, it's a whole function. So we need three to five years of, um, of, of, uh, prototyping, pro, you know, prototyping the world, prototyping the, the, the work world and people experimenting and people figuring out what works and what, you know, how much of this talent moving out of the big cities is real and how much of that is transitory. Um, so it's going to be, I think it's going to be a really interesting period, but I, I think it's going to be more similar to what we're doing now than we think, but different in ways that we can't easily predict. Yeah. Um, I like that semi, you know, like forward thinking, but also somewhat fence-like. I like that. Um, <laughs> what, the, uh, the point that I was, uh, going to make was, oh, there is, um, in London, it opened what they called a post-pandemic co-working space. It's called Bureau. It's like a member's lounge it's over in North Greenwich. And essentially what it is when, when they, when they sent me the press release, and I looked at it and went, oh, what does that, what does, what does that actually look like? Like looked for images and that sort of thing. And I went and toured it. And essentially all it is, is wipeable surfaces everywhere. Like there's no, <laughs> no, no booths, no, uh, telephone, you know, things for, you know, this is where you do quiet work. If you need quiet work or anything like that, all really echoey, open, billowy, you know, air is everywhere. Uh, it is a nightmare to work in. And I said to them, terrible. I was like, I said, even us having this conversation now is echoing. Like that's going to be a problem for people trying to focus. Right. And they said, Oh, well you can wear headphones. And I went, Holy Christ, I can do that in my house. Like why I was going to say, you know, yeah. <laughs> it was really interesting. We, we had a really honest chat and the, the designer, we had, a, I had a chat with the designer and she went, I, this was the brief and she showed me the brief and it was literally what, what they asked for. So I was like, okay, fair. Well, you know, you did your job, you know, but again, yeah. like you say, these places don't exist because we haven't created them or, you know, had briefs to do it. And I think when that comes, that'll be really exciting. I see what Google and Facebook and all these other companies have built in other places of the world. And I sort of go, they're your blueprints, you know, now you've just got to make your version of it and you don't have to spend a yeah. fortune or give people skittles every day for 24 seven. So I think it's kind of interesting, you know, why we're not seeing that now. It can't all just be money. It has to be willingness as well, I think, but I think, it'll be interesting. yeah, I think that we'll see the real innovation when we start to see companies, you know, opening up enough that people are coming back and that they listen to those people and, and make adjustments based on what the workers coming back into the office are doing and want to do and let that innovation come up 
organically rather than rather than there being a brief where some anonymous entity has supposedly figured out all the answers and <laughs> yeah. charts out a you know does a CAD rendering and then you know whatever like it has to, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna come from listening to them to to to, to office workers yeah uh, i'm going to ask everyone on this season what's your take on the metaverse and work uh are we going to be avatars floating between virtual offices or buying stock in zoom still a good idea where do you want it to go rob i'm uh, super skeptical of the of the metaverse right now i mean i just think I, 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 I'm, I'm skeptical of it as a work uh, thing. Like I, I, it just seems like such a gimmick. Um, it has a long way to go. Uh, you know, anything is possible. And for years, I was pretty skeptical about video conference stuff as a as a legit alternative to face to face meetings. And I think that that has changed. But I just don't. I have yet to see anything that you know those meetings. <laughs> I, I'm I'm a skeptic. I'm a heavy skeptic. Interesting. Give give me a reason why you're a skeptic. Go on. I just don't think the technology is there, and it's and it's it's too distracting. It doesn't it doesn't add like what is that? What would be the? I don't see what the upside is to mm. having a cartoon version of yourself. Like I just don't get. I don't get what is to be. It seems like a gimmick. It seems like it would be a fun. I could see doing your Christmas or holiday party that way once mm. as a fun thing. <laughs> but beyond that, I just don't see the, I don't see the advantage. I, I, I've yeah. yet to see the case study of like, or the case of like, here's, here's how this process will be improved. Here's how, here's this better outcome that we'll have yeah. because we're meeting as avatars. Like I don't, I haven't seen that case. So the Rob scales are bare for the metaverse, right? There's nothing on positive or negative side, but if uh, there's more negative metaverse in the work context, I think metaverse Just work. Okay, right. and hanging out with social yeah. as a, so, as an, as an alternative to social media, uh, lots of possibility, uh, lots. I've okay. seen kids, the way kids use it is real and that's, that's a different thing. So, but for the work world, I don't see it. Um, Not right now. Things could change. I don't see it right now. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I think it's got a lot of potential. I think it, like you say, it's got to be the right um, environment, got to have the advantages. Um, but what everything I see is what I call PR fluff. And it's just a beautiful video and it's not the realities of what you actually like sort of see. And when you do see it and experience it yourself, it's just a bit naff. But, um, you know, <laughs> hopefully it'll get there eventually. And I, I, yeah. I, I, like you, can't wait to game in it, but it'll be interesting to sort of see. But yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we end as ever uh, with mouthwash as with Dead Island tweets. That is the part where the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. So if you turn your attention to the nest, you will see a tweet there by the beautiful account Possum Every Hour. Um, and Rob, like me, you like an automated animal Twitter account, it seems. Mine is Red Pandas, yours is Possums. Tell us, why did you pick this tweet? Okay, so I have a short, but I, but so I'm, as you, Paul and I discussed off line when we were setting this up i'm not a huge twitter fan or user i'm not a power user but i am a big fan of automated <laughs> i want to say something on behalf of bots and this picture uh is a woman in detroit you can if you can look closely it says detroit on the trash can she's got a possum so my wife is a a from detroit b a photographer and c a huge fan of possums and this picture 
we were both so struck by. <laughs> so I uh, snuck around behind her back, figured out who, and I had to download, there's no credit given on Possum Every Hour. So I had to reverse Google search the image, found the photographer, Ryan Garza from the Detroit Free Press and bought from the Detroit Free Press the print of this picture to give my wife as a uh, birthday gift. So this is by far the most, the, the tweet that has had the most impact on my daily life. <laughs> that is some serious husband brownie points if ever I heard it, that's for sure. Um, I love, And you say you're not a Twitter power user. Most people wouldn't know how to do all of that. So I think you're definitely up there on the power user section. <laughs> Um, okay, that is a wrap on season, uh, sorry, on episode three of season four. Uh, my thanks to Rob Walker for giving me his time on self-awareness, uh, noticing in the world of work. Uh, make sure you buy the book and sign up for the newsletter of all things Rob. Point your browser to robwalker.net, robwalker.net. Um, Rob, before I let you go, any final words of advice for the listeners as they navigate through the world or the future of work? Oh, you know, take a, give yourself a little, you know, Take the two themes of today and give yourself some time for personal introspection, noticing what you notice and what matters to you and what you care about. Make sure that that aligns with what you're doing work-wise. And if it's not, then start working on how to make that, you know, what you want it to be. Mm. Okie doke. Great advice. Up next on Mouthwash is Leeson, Leesman Index CEO Tim Oldman. The Leeson Index is, in case you don't know, the largest employee experience database in the world. They measure everything about the workplace and I'm going to quiz him on what's changed and changing. I urge you to tune in. Head over to mouthwash.norby.live and you'll get a text so you never miss a minute of this season of Mouthwash and future seasons. Mouthwash is produced by the team at Big Tent Media. Special thanks to my producer, the wonderful Suze, who reminds me to do things like put my mic on. As always on uh, everything Mouthwash, even the text alerts can be found over at mouthwashshow.com. That's mouthwashshow.com. I'm a firm believer that you do not remember the days, we remember the moments, and I hope this has been one for you. I'm Paul Armstrong. This is Mouthwash. Listen in again soon to get fresh chat that leaves you more confident. Thanks for listening to Mouthwash. Please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors. Season four of Mouthwash was sponsored by Workplace by Meta. The easy to use features at Workplace help people work together in new ways. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Have a great day.